0: Welcome to Trash Compactor, I'm Josh. In our continuing coverage of the Star Wars prequels, we finally arrived at Episode 3, and who can forget the famous opening duel between Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi at the beginning of the movie on the lava world of Sigma Volcanus, locked in mortal combat over who will possess the ultimate power bestowed by the Kyber Crystal. No? You didn't see that in the Episode 3 you saw? Well, I happen to be holding the script to Star Wars 3 Fall of the Republic right here, and it says here, oh, written by John L. Flynn. Who's John L. Flynn? Well, I'm glad you asked, because today's guest is the author of the infamous fan treatment for the final of the Star Wars prequels written in the early 1980s, and to this day has been mistaken for the real thing. That's actually true. I was doing some research for this, and I saw on a message board someone still thought it was a real A real lucasfilm document and the the timestamp was uh 2022 so it's still fooling people um i'm fairly certain uh that i encountered this first this document first for sale at a dealer's table at a star trek convention in the early 1990s and it's held sway over me ever since as a window into what the mysterious dark times before the original star wars movies might have been like um and For that reason, I'm very pleased to welcome its author, Mr. John L. Flynn, to Trash
1: Compactor. Mr.
0: Flynn, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me. And it's actually Doctor. Oh, it's actually Doctor. Excuse me. Welcome, Dr. Flynn, to Trash Compactor. Well, that's all right. Happy to be here. First things
0: first, I was wondering if you could clear something up for me. So I'm holding in my hands a copy of Star Wars III, Fall of the Republic. Story Chicken by John L Flynn with a red cover. I think this may be a copy that I acquired at the aforementioned Star Trek convention, but it says here first edition January 20 1982, but the pages inside say September 6 1983. So I'm wondering if you could
1: clear up for me when did you actually write this? I wrote that for uh Christmas uh 1982. Oh. So okay. I was um um at the time um, working a minimum wage job. And I wanted to be able to buy my friends Christmas gifts for the upcoming holiday. And I honestly couldn't afford to do that. And so uh, one of my uh, friends said, why don't you write them a story and give that as a gift for the holidays? And, uh, well, they said, you know, well, uh, what kind of story should you be writing? And so somebody suggested, why don't you write a Star Wars story? And so I, I wrote, um, uh, the treatment that you have right there. Uh, we all thought that the next, uh, trilogy would follow our, our middle trilogy and that we had been told that. Lucas was going to tell the story in reverse, so episode three would be before episode two and episode one. Oh I and so that is the reason why I did uh my treatment for the third film in the series, thinking that that would have been the first one that we would have seen and so i I literally wrote that for about a dozen of my friends. I bound it. In the way that you have it there. In fact, it it looks like it could be an original. And uh, I had the cover printed. It was a modest production, again, just for my friends at Christmas. So one of my friends was a wheeler dealer at the conventions. And Uh uh, what I didn't know they were going to do was they were going to mark that up and sell that at the conventions as the actual treatment for the next star wars film (laughs) and you know it's kind of flattering if you think about it but uh um, i never made a dime on this This was, in fact i probably lost money printing this up and giving it out to my friends as a christmas gift that year and um this guy uh reproduced Hundreds, maybe thousands of these. And these went out all over the conventions. And um, that's kind of the, the story of where that came from. Um, I, I The next Christmas, I wrote a treatment for one of the Star Trek films and gave that as a gift. And uh, I think it was called The Trial of James uh, T. Kirk. And this was supposed to be uh, before um, the Voyage home
0: you know what that's actually lighting up some neurons that haven't fired in quite a long time that that rings a bell the trial of james t kirk i'm gonna have to go and dig that up because now i'm curious to read it um but that's quite a story actually i think today they would probably term that going viral <laughs>
1: right? well yes you know uh that would be exactly uh it and Again, it was kind of flattering, but I didn't know that this guy was going to make a lot of money from it. And you know what? I I would go by, I would uh, surf by his table, because I did a lot of inventions back then. I I did maybe 12 a year. And I would surf by his table, and I'd kind of listen to him, and he would be telling people, oh, yeah, this is coming from Lucasfilm itself and this is going to be the next movie, and oh my God. <laughs>
0: wow, that's really, yeah. So that actually fills in a lot of the puzzle pieces for me, because I was always wondering how this sort of acquired the the urban legend status that it did. And it seems, I mean, not on your part, certainly, but it seems that some of that was intentional showmanship, which is fascinating. I didn't know that.
1: Would you believe, before I finalize that, There's a science fiction writer by the name of Alan Wold, W-O-L-D. And at the time, I was aspiring to become a science fiction writer. I've achieved that now. But um, uh, I I showed that to Alan, and Alan worked through the document and and made all of the corrections for me. And he says, you know, I I believe it, but, you know, I'm sure they're going to come up with something even more bizarre than that for the film. And the alas, uh, you know, that's what we had. That was something pretty bizarre.
0: Yeah, well, why don't we jump right to that? Because um, I reread it in preparation to speak with you. I hadn't read it probably since the early 1990s. And I was actually struck how many things in here... Kind of echoed things that ended up in the actual episode three that George Lucas made, episode three, Revenge of the Sith, came out in 2005. So 20-ish years, he wrote his after you wrote yours. You know, there were things like the idea that the death of Anakin's wife has something to do with his final fall to the dark side. There's a montage scene in your treatment of the fall of the Jedi as they make their last stand. Yeah. The end sequence is very similar with um, the various characters uh, where they end up sort of setting the table for episode four, the original Star Wars. And I
1: was just wondering, I'm curious
0: if you wonder, because I certainly did. Do you think George Lucas ever
1: read your treatment? Well, you know, this is interesting. A few years ago, and I'm, I'm thinking maybe 10 years ago. Lucas um was publishing a magazine. Do they still publish their magazine? I, I don't recall. The Star Wars
0: magazine? Yes. The Star Wars Insider is the official um that's, Star Wars magazine. Yeah.
1: Yes, so yeah, they still publish uh, yeah. There was a person uh working at Lucasfilm and uh, he had a copy of my treatment. And he said, you know, I'd I'd like to do an interview with you for the magazine. And I said, you know, that would be very, very nice. And he says, you know. You talk about a lot of things that ended up going into the final film. And I, you know, I, I have my doubts as to whether George read your script or, you know, maybe had somebody read it and, you know, give him a a rundown on what you had uh, put together. So we were all set to do this interview, sort of like what you and I are doing today, and at the last minute, George canceled, um, the interview. And uh, he said to the guy, and I wish I could remember his name, but he was somebody who actually worked in uh, Lucasfilm, and he was part of the magazine. And um, he said, you know, John, I'm sorry, we're going to have to can this because um, this is a little bit too touchy for the, for the magazine here. And I said, okay, you know, and I was disappointed. And he says, tell you what, I'm going to send you uh, a couple of our official shirts, T-shirts that we have around the office. And they did that, and um, afterwards I kept thinking, you know what, it's it's very possible that I touched on a few areas that George did not want to admit were written by someone else or, uh, you know, the ideas came up from somebody else. Now, with that said, d- all throughout the time that um um uh, this is making its initial rounds and i'm giving these as christmas gifts i was um starting out as a writer i wrote for starlog do you remember starlog magazine
0: Oh, i remember starlog i had many many issues of that on my shelf as a as a kid i don't know where they are now but yeah i love uh, yeah. starlog
1: and so i was working for starlog Cine Fantastique. fantastic do you remember Cinefantastique. Cinefantastique? oh yes Yes, yeah, and, and there mean. was a horror magazine called Fangoria. That, Fangoria, uh, yeah, yeah. So I was doing, I was uh, writing the occasional article for those different magazines and publishing, and that was sort of the beginning of my career as an actual writer. Today, um, I've uh, I just turned uh, my twenty-first manuscript into my agent, and she's reading it over now before we um, offer it. To a publisher and so you know i have uh, 20 books that are already in print and this would be num- book number 21 so you know so I've, I've come a long way since that time period absolutely but uh with the introduction of starlog to you i was doing a lot of reading of background stuff and i was uh, very friendly with uh, dave mcdonald i don't know if you remember dave mcdonald he used to edit starlog and um dave mcdonald sent me a whole lot of stuff and he says picture of this and you know if there's something here you'd like to write an article about you know we'll go ahead and, and publish it and you know um he gave me some of the early stuff that Lucasfilm film uh had produced um in you know um lucas wrote a bunch of drafts um And some of them were just um, like stories. Some of them were actual scripts. And so I was able to read through a lot of this stuff. They were called the Journal of the Wills (laughs) initially, and uh, unusual spelling on the word wills. And uh, I had the opportunity to read through a lot of this stuff. And um, it was very interesting. I ended up uh, pulling together an article that didn't go to Starlog. They didn't publish it but it went through uh, sci-fi universe i think was the name of the magazine i don't Mm -hmm. know if that name strikes a chord with you or not but it does yeah so it was published in sci-fi universe and it was um well it was um supposing if uh, lucas had stuck to his different outlines and drafts and what would the star wars movies look like and so, having read those, I had some preparation for um, writing my treatment. Um, and I should also say that um, around the same time period, I I wrote a story about how Darth Vader became Darth Vader.
0: Separate from this, you wrote a story. Yes, yes. And oh, fascinating! It, okay. it
1: went into one of those uh, fanzine magazines, and and basically, he's all scarred up from his fight with obi-wan mm-hmm. and um he's taken by this mystical group of uh sith Lords, and he becomes darth Vader. they put on you know the whole uh uniform and everything else and so that went into a um fanzine and it was read by a lot of star wars fans and and i you know i got good feedback from it And so I wanted to incorporate some of that into my treatment. And so, you know, um, here's the genesis of a number of different things. But also, let me add that um, there was a series of stories that Isaac Asimov wrote called The Foundation Stories. I loved those as a kid. And um, I always felt that George Lucas had borrowed very liberally from the stories. No doubt about it. (laughs) And in in constructing uh, my treatment, I tried to add into uh, the treatment that whole sense that came from asthma. Now, I had the opportunity to meet asthma on a number of different occasions. And, you know, when when you finally do become um, an official SFWA member, a science fiction writers of America member, everybody then starts talking to you like you're one of them. And so it was fun being able to talk to him on a level, author to author. And honestly, uh, where I get uh, some of my background about the society that is going on comes from there as well.
0: That actually makes a lot of sense. And you saying that, I'm seeing it now. The um, uh, the name uh, uh, Jantor of the city planet in uh, Lucas's prequel films, It's called Coruscant. Yes. But that whole notion of the bright center of the universe is this metropolis city planet that's the capital of the galaxy. That's certainly from Foundation. And yeah, and also there was something in your treatment that I thought was sort of, you know, missing from the prequel films was this sense of the politicking, that it was more than just Palpatine at the top it was sort of this whole society of conspiring and conniving and jockeying for position and stuff and that's that's certainly something that now that you're mentioning foundation i can totally see that in it um you know originally palpatine
1: was uh richard nixon right yes yes george was writing at a at the time period when uh nixon you know was coming out as being this huge crook and you know somebody behind you know, the Republican Party. He was, uh, I guess, the, the early uh, runner of the MAGA party before Trump came along. And so um I wanted to capture Palpatine like that. Um, And I'm not sure if that comes out or not. No,
0: no, I think that that definitely comes out. One of the things that, you know, from a story perspective, I understand why, you know, this idea that the master manipulator politician who turns the Republic into an empire is also secretly the sort of Dark Lord, Wizard, Sith Lord. And he kind of combines them into one, which I think is a, I mean, it sort of makes sense in dramatic story terms, but it kind of does a disservice to the whole idea that to do what the Emperor did or what an opportunistic politician can do it doesn't necessitate the use of dark magic of any kind. I mean, you don't have to be some supernatural demonic force to kind of pull one over on the citizens of the galaxy or of the the nation. I think that actually undercuts the message a little bit of how easy it is or how susceptible, you know, democracies are to descending into fascism. So one thing that I liked your Palpatine, you really get the sense of him as a politician and as someone not just power-hungry because they're a Sith Lord. But also, the politician side, I think, really does come through a little bit more strongly. And I appreciated that. Um, You mentioned earlier, and this was one of the questions I had for you, you had access to, you were able to read some of George Lucas's rough drafts and story treatments and stuff. Because I think one of the reasons why it was so easy to believe that your treatment for Fall of the Republic was the genuine article was because you do incorporate things from Lucas's earlier drafts, like things like the Kyber Crystal. You do invoke the, the Journal of the Wills and the same way that I think the third draft of Star Wars, but also the novelization of Star Wars says from the adventures of Luke Skywalker, you say this is from the adventures of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And it just really gives it that feeling of authenticity. So I was going to ask you if you how you had familiarized yourself uh, with those earlier concepts because i know in the days before the internet a lot harder to get your hands on that sort of stuff but it was actually the editor of starlock you said
1: yes party, yes sure. and again uh dave mcdonald was a was a terrific guy and i you know i think he was sort of the driving force behind this beautiful magazine i i, mm-hmm. I knew that i bought issue number one when when it hit the shelf and um, I, I had up to 100 plus issues when, you know, I finally was done with it. And uh, Dave McDonald was a great guy. Kerry um, uh, O'Quinn also. I don't know if you remember Kerry O'Quinn. He was the publisher of the magazine. It, it's it's so funny. I was at a San Diego Comic-Con. This was about two or three years ago. And there's a green room that uh, um, writers and other celebrities can go. And so I, I wanted to go in there for just a, a, about an hour to, you know, kind of relax, uh, have a drink, maybe nibble on, you know, some of the food. And Terry O'Quinn was sitting there and nobody was around him. And I got the idea that uh, nobody remembered him. And so I I walked up and I said, can I sit here? And he said, sure. And I said, you are Kerry O'Quinn, aren't you? And uh, he says, oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, you're probably not going to remember me, but I, I wrote for Dave McDonald and I wrote a number of articles, you know, in the Starlog magazine, among others. And uh, we had this wonderful um, 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 kind of renewal of uh, our identities. I He didn't know me, but he got a chance to know me and it was fun. Uh, so, but um, I also wanted to add too is um, I have the, PhD in psychology, but my M.A. is in English. And so when I read, uh, I'm sorry, when I saw Star Wars originally, I thought this has all of the hallmarks of some of the great pieces of literature, Um, you know, like um, the Three Musketeers, for example. Um, And then, of course, the whole Joseph Campbell thing is there. And so with those archetypes kind of in the back of my mind when i sat down to do episode three i was trying to emulate those same kinds of stories that george obviously did and uh, um you know of course you know it wasn't my uh, creation this is george's creation i was just lucky enough to be able to play in his world because i was a fan writer and this was never going to go out to the population. This was never, never. I mean, the thought. How well, could that was, ever happen? It was just to go out to about a dozen of my friends for as a Christmas gift. And, uh, you know, this uh, one friend, you know, he's uh, he was a dealer and he made lots of money from it um and um you know that's how it got out into the world we had a little bit of a falling out afterwards because i you know this is not why i gave him the gift and the other people the gift this was just you know i didn't have the money that year to buy a real gift and so i thought i'll write a story as a gift you know
0: Yeah, I can certainly understand, Um, especially because it's your work. But there's also the copyright gray area of, you know, it's a fan work, which, as I understand, is generally acceptable as long as you don't try to make money off it. Um, So to see someone, you know, essentially breaking the law, yet reaping large rewards from doing so, I can imagine
1: would be somewhat galling. Um, I actually uh, asked him to stop doing it and he said, you know i've got a bunch here that i paid money for do you mind if i just sell these off and so i said okay okay and then of course he did this very same thing to my um star trek treatment that i wrote and it was similar to that that was again the next christmas so you know can't trust him
0: (laughs) no i guess not um I mean, again, like you say, it must have felt good in a way, you know, certainly a vote of confidence in your writing for people to really latch onto it and for it to pass muster as, you know, the next Star Wars. I mean, for years and years, I mean, even still, it's still fooling a lot of people as an authentic document. So, I mean, I think that's testament to uh, the quality of the writing, but it's also... I think has to do with something you said about, you know, when you saw Star Wars, you noticed a lot of familiar literary elements and sort of the sources that George Lucas was drawing upon. And you very wisely, I think, decided to draw from those very same sources in order to continue the story. And I think, That was a very canny move, a canny understanding on your part of how Star Wars operated, uh, because I think, as is my humble opinion, I think the most successful new Star Wars, I think the most successful of them do return to the original inspirations and sort of riff on that whereas i think sometimes there's a mistake of making star wars that it's so self referential that they're just making star wars about star wars and i think that those are the ones that that sort of fall a little flat and I think it's because they're making the mistake of not broadening the scope of what Star Wars can do by returning to the original inspirations and sort of taking a cue from the same material that inspired George Lucas. And I think, you know, as you just articulated, I think you very smartly went that route where you thank you. Yeah. you were like, okay, what is this movie, Star Wars, what is it doing? I will do that, not let me make something that looks like that.
1: Yes right, yes, but at the same time i'm I'm still working with the characters that George uh, created and just trying to expand sort of outward on on these. I will say that when I saw him, episode six, it was after I'd written my treatment, and um I was um cheering because George had made Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, the hero of the piece, mm. And so, you know what, I, I always thought that the first trilogy, 1, 2, and 3, should have been t- subtitled The Tragedy of Anakin Skywalker. Mm. And then 4, 5, and 6 was the redemption, if you will, of Anakin Skywalker.
0: So well, that's also very interesting because I think, first of all, that's something that I don't think I, I really realized, even though I'm seeing the date on the cover here, but I don't think I really realized until sitting down to talk with you just now, that you wrote this before you saw Return of the Jedi. Yes. And I think it's also a testament to the writing and your understanding of how Star Wars works, that it works flawlessly with Return of the Jedi as a part of the story. And I do think it's really interesting that you appeared to to end up on the same wavelength as George Lucas, because I think, you know, in terms of making Anakin Skywalker... Really, a hero and redeeming him in Return of the Jedi, because I don't think that that was clear to a lot of people between The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, that that's where the story had to go. You know, I think it very easily could have gone in several other directions, but you sort of zeroed in on this idea of Anakin Skywalker slash Darth Vader as a tragic figure. That ultimately, as we know, is what George Lucas was also thinking. So I think that's also one of the reasons why I think this holds up so well nearly, geez, or I guess, you know, 40 years after the fact. (laughs) That, um, you know, you really, you got on the same wavelengths that George Lucas was on and only after the first two movies. So, so, I mean,
1: that's quite an accomplishment. Thank thank you very much. I'll, I'll tell you, those people who received it as a gift that Christmas read it and they said, oh, you know what you should do? You should try to contact George and, you know, give him some of your ideas, uh, because we all thought that when, um, uh, uh Revenge of the Jedi, Return of the Jedi, came out, that we would begin with the first trilogy. And again, um, every one of the magazines I read said he was going to do it in reverse order. So it was going to be three, two, and one. That's actually really interesting. You know, I often
0: think about, or I wonder about, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Star Wars prequels are the first example of a true equal if i'm not mistaken i don't think the word prequel even existed up until this idea that there were going to be three new star wars movies but they happened
1: before the original star wars movies you can probably um um nod your head at uh, francis Hort coppola godfather 2 is is like half a prequel and half a sequel (laughs) no that's No, that's very true. And knowing the
0: relationship that Coppola and Lucas had, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at all if George Lucas even unconsciously was influenced by that story. But so, yeah, so I've always thought, you know, it's a really interesting kind of creative exercise to write a story that has to work in its own right, has to be surprising and say something that You know, maybe uh, you weren't aware yet dovetail perfectly into these pre-existing stories. So I've always thought that that was an interesting creative exercise. But this idea, I actually think, is even more interesting where... You're doing the same thing, but sort of you do it three times. If you if you were to do episode three, then episode two, then episode one, I think that would have been a very interesting way to go. And that also answers my question that I was going to ask you why you started with episode three instead of with episode one. And now it makes complete sense because you thought that the next movie was going to be episode three. But on that note, there was a line in your script about Boba Fett is charged for the murder of the Jedi Kane Starkiller. Again, another reference to Lucas's earlier drafts, the character Kane Starkiller. Uh, But then it says in your script, the parenthetical refer to Star Wars Episode 2. So I was just wondering, having thought through a lot of what was going to happen in Star Wars Episode 3, did you come up with any ideas or did you have a sense of what the shape of what episode two and episode one may have been like sort of in continuity with the uh,
1: star Wars three that you wrote. Well, you know, I actually uh, imagined um, these first, this first trilogy to be similar to um, uh, again, some of these classical stories that uh, George was probably reading. And I immediately it comes to uh, the three musketeers. Uh, so if the Jedi are the three musketeers, then we have this youngster who comes among them. Uh, and uh, D'Artagnan, you know, he, he comes from a family, you know, of uh, respected uh, swords people. You know, his father was a, a swordsmaster. And so I thought uh, that uh, Anakin was going to be not a kid in the beginning, but like a young man who comes to uh, the Jedi and wants to be like them, but for some reason, they don't take him in immediately. But um, he has a friendship that develops with uh, Obi-Wan, as, as of course, is in the story. And um, the character of Obi-Wan is, is like... Uh, the eldest of the three musketeers, you know Athos and um the other two are are there and and one or two one or both of them gets- ki- gets killed off as you know the stories continue into episode three and so I imagine it would be something along those lines and of course there's there's a a woman involved, and and she would have been um um something that came between d'artagnan or anakin if you will and obi-wan you know who knows well that's certainly something
0: i know there was a lot of speculation when the prequels were in the process of being made that anakin was going to suspect that there was a relationship going on behind his back between obi-wan and padme and you've just connected the dots for me that i don't I don't believe I never made the Three Musketeers connection before. So what you're saying is that you envisioned Kane Starkiller as one of that Three Musketeers uh, yes. sort of triumvirate who would have met his end exactly the movie before. Abs- oh, oh, see. Exactly. I really I like that. I think that's I think that's very cool. What you just described is very much in line with how these events are described to the extent that they are in dialogue in the original trilogy of films. And I think some fans would argue, and I know some fans would argue, that the prequel movies that George Lucas made don't always necessarily agree with what was laid out in the original films. I mean, your mileage may vary on that, but that's certainly a valid, I think, point of view. I think, you know, any number of reasons for that. The proximity between, you know, how far removed he was from having made the originals when he made the prequel films, that could have something to do with it. But then just also, I mean, as a writer yourself, I think, you know, things evolve and and sort of change in your mind and what interests you changes and evolves. I mean, it's a product of who you are as a writer when you're writing it. So I don't know that I would call any of these deviations necessarily mistakes because I think that that does a disservice to what the artist is actually doing and what the process of creating something actually is. Uh, But that said, You know, another reason I think your treatment still holds up is because it does dovetail very nicely with the things that were said and described in the original films. And ironically, I think as fans of a work, I think perhaps we have even more reverence for what is said in those movies than the creator of them. And I guess I'm not really crescendoing to a point here, but I guess I'll just sort of ask you, you know, as a writer, do you sometimes see something someone else has written or created or a movie someone has made and say, you know, not what I would have done, though I see where you're coming from and I respect that that's what it is?
1: Yes, exactly. and In fact, um, the biggest complaint that I have heard from fans and it's a it's a complaint that i uh share also for episodes one two and three is that um there's a lot of stuff in there that um actually takes away from the fun of the original trilogy and i thought if if lucas had um done away with a lot of uh you know that political stuff that's in there um it would have been a lot more fun i mean think about it uh, do we do we have to know about what's going on in in France during uh that period of the three musketeers not really you know you we can make a couple of references and then let it go and i again i initially thought that that's how lucas was going to go he was going to have this you know sort of quasi um you know the Jedi were going to be like the musketeers uh they weren't going to be soldiers. They weren't going to be um, law, uh, law enforcement people. Um, but they were going to have a, a, a point in the government somehow. And it was going to be, you know, these guys are going out and they're going to have a fun adventure. And that's how I imagined the first three films as being. And then, of course, you know, we've got this fun adventure going on in episode one. And then things get to be a little bit more serious by episode uh, two. And then, of course, you know, all hell breaks loose in, in episode three as as what I've written. So I imagine the, the original trilogy to be much more fun than it turned out to be. Um,
0: yeah. Well, you know, it is interesting, you know, in your treatment for Fall of the Republic, the politics is there, but just the way that it's handled... It just feels like a natural outgrowth of the world and of the story. It doesn't feel like a digression, I suppose
1: I mean, did we need to know all that stuff about the trade guilds um yeah, well,
0: um, you know it's funny so we're so we just recorded our episode on the phantom Menace, so with uh the podcast we are uh we're entering the um uh the 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 beginning of our of our prequel themed coverage mm-hmm. um And, you know, we just had a long conversation about The Phantom Menace. And I think what we landed on was it's not necessarily that it was out of place. It just needed a little more refinement for it to do what it what I think the aim was. And just unfortunately, I do think it's a little clunky. And the reason for why it's there, I don't think fully comes across in the final product. Yeah, I agree with you. It's so fascinating. You know, Star Wars is one of these things where it really is a modern fairy tale. It's a contemporary mythology. It's it's the story that we all know and we all s- sort of have in common. And I love talking about it and imagining what ifs and talking it over and over. Obviously, I have a Star Wars podcast, so so it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> right. clearly something that I uh, I have an endless reservoir of enthusiasm for. And what's so fascinating, too, is that it's almost like George Lucas was so much more successful in creating what he did for his own good because what happened was you have two decades or not even in your case but like almost two decades of the entire world trying to come up with their own version of what these new movies are going to be like and there's no way i mean i don't care who you are there's no way that what you come up with is going to satisfy the legions of fans around the world who have been imagining the possibilities and the what ifs and the everything for years and years and years so you know you almost have to feel bad for the guy but though I don't know that I go that far but it's
1: it's it's, it's it's it's
0: it's certainly it's it's certainly a creative challenge and i have to imagine trying to do that must you know, how do you, how do you create the situation so that you're free to be creative without feeling the weight and the pressure of the expectations, you know, I yeah. mean, as a writer yourself? Yeah. I mean, do you have some thoughts on that? Uh,
1: I, I do. Um, I, I write, um, um, I write sci-fi and mystery right now. And I have a series of uh, mystery novels that has a central character and, um, um i always i always wanted to write a james bond story it's it's sort of like uh steven spielberg and george lucas being on that beach talking about indiana jones well i wanted to Mm -hmm. write uh, a james bond story where it wasn't a a male james Bond, a male spy i wanted to write a female spy and um Mm -hmm. when i started working on this i ended up realizing I don't want her to be a spy at all. She's going to become a detective and she's going to be in homicide. And, you know, suddenly my story, you know, created itself more or less. And uh, uh, this 21st book that I was telling you about, uh, I'm with a new publisher now uh, and they're publishing all my mystery stories. And the one thing that um, um, the publisher said to me was, we, we don't have an origin story for your detective. And I thought, oh. oh, let me write the origin story, and so that's what I've written. Is uh, that's book twenty-one in, in my collection of books, and uh, it starts uh, twenty years earlier, and then comes up to date. So you've, so, written, am, so you've
0: done, you've gone through the same exercise. You you exactly. have written a prequel to your own universe. Interesting.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so I, I was leading up uh, to. Imagine for a moment you're sitting down to watch uh, episode one, okay? Now, do you remember how much fun uh, uh, Star Wars A New Hope was? I mean, to me, it was all of the Saturday morning uh, uh, cartoons and serials that I I would watch, and so I imagine that episode one would be like, again, I hate to keep going back to the Three Musketeers, but that's... That's a story I I absolutely adore. And can you imagine uh, three Jedis showing up? Okay, Kane Starkiller being one, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and then there's another one. And they're saying, oh, for one, one for Oh, for one. I mean, and uh, they have to go chasing out to fight bad guys with their lightsabers. I mean, and it doesn't matter that it's a trade guild or whatever. It's just they've got to do this, you know? and how much fun it would have been to then have, um, Anakin as, as a young man, you know, he's a teenager coming in and, Oh, I'm, I'm going to join you guys, even though I don't know everything, you know, and that's how I imagined episode one would go. And, mm-hmm. um, eventually, you know, he would be introduced to the, um, you know, to the whole order of the Musketeers and, you know, there would be a beautiful woman involved, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And but again, I kept thinking this whole notion: they're pulling their lightsabers out, and one of them says, "One for all, and all for one," and then they go running off to do whatever they're going to do. That's how I wanted to see Episode One start. Mm. And um, it, it it it's 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 very heavy the way that episode one is right now it doesn't have the light uh fun touches that i would have liked well you know
0: what's interesting about that because i just had a very long conversation about this very subject of episode one Mm -hmm. um one of the things that we were talking about was how the tone of episode one varies wildly like there's the very heavy as you say political stuff and that's right alongside you know, very cartoonish, some might say juvenile humor. And it sort of moves from one extreme in tone to another, you know, versus something like what you're describing, I think, you know, is light, but not not unserious. Right. Yes. Where I think there's an attempt, I think, in episode one, The Phantom Menace, the film to introduce some some levity. Through things like the character of Jar Jar through the, you know, some of the elements of it that seem overtly designed for children. Whereas I think, you know, another way to go, and I'd be very curious what George Lucas's thought process was, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, we'll just never know. But I there is another alternative. Uh, which is to do as you say. It's not necessarily to have to lighten the heavy stuff with the juvenile stuff, but there's like a sort of a middle ground of fun action adventure the whole way through uh, without, you know, avoiding any of the thornier or, or weightier things. I mean, your Fall of the Republic treatment, it sounds like in what you're describing, it would be sort of the darkest that it ever gets. Yes, And I think... The tone that you create, the sense that you create in this, you know, it is very dark, but it still feels within the realm of what Star Wars can do and what it feels like. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you know, again, I think, I mean, I know I keep saying this, but I I think that just in talking to you and having recently reread the Fall of the Republic script, I now have a much better, I think, understanding of why it has persisted for so long as you know, this sort of curio or an object of fascination with Star Wars fans. It's because there is something about it that feels very genuine. It feels like a very plausible version of what Star Wars Episode Three may very well ha- have been like in some other alternate universe.
1: You know, let me uh, let me go on to say um, um, there are a couple of things in that darker harsh portion of my story there. That you may not have picked up, but I actually kill off Obi-Wan Kenobi in that treatment. You will see that he's going through an exploding star. Oh, he, that's interesting. He he's not supposed to have survived. And so when I first saw Star Wars in a new hole, I imagined that Obi-Wan Kenobi was a force ghost, even though, you know, long before we came up with the idea of Force Ghost. I thought he was, you know not not alive i you know and then when darth vader slices him in half there's no body that's there
0: right because he was never there he was a yeah. false ghost the whole time that's fascinating you're right i didn't pick up on that but i'm looking at what you wrote again the end yeah so because i think it. the reason that that didn't land with me is because we all assume that i mean or i guess not we all but um, I assume that he stays alive because he shows up in the next movie, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. But now that you're saying this, uh, yeah, he he flies through the core of the exploding star. You do see him again in your sort of closing yeah, the montage one. here. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's in corporeal form. Yeah, that's yeah. In- that's very interesting. I didn't. and, um, I didn't uh, um,
1: that. and what about um, my portrayal of Yoda? Uh, for that matter,
0: I appreciated your portrayal of Yoda. I I am of the opinion in the Star Wars prequel films that we got. I'm one of those who didn't love that he he fought with a lightsaber, and I thought that your portrayal of Yoda, I think, preserved a lot of the mystique of the character. Um, that I think in the prequel films he. You know, there's a um, I don't know if this is going to make any sense. There's like an acting, a piece of acting advice where it's something along the lines of never show them your top because there's nowhere else to go because they've seen it. And I kind of feel that way with Yoda, that he would seem much more powerful if we never actually saw him with a lightsaber and see what he could do. It would be much more powerful the less we see of him so so i actually I actually really appreciated the way that you handle Yoda, and I'm actually just now realizing again because I only just in this conversation realized that you had only seen the Empire Strikes back when you wrote it, you hadn't seen Return of the Jedi yet,
1: yes, yeah. so yeah.
0: so your your depiction of Yoda is based solely on that one film, which again is it feels so in line with the rest of the the trilogy. It's really a testament to how well you were able to to understand the character and what it was supposed to feel like
1: well i'll I'll tell you something else josh uh my um uh my grandmother um is the person responsible for having raised me and given me the values and morals that i have and um i i saw the Empire strikes back and then she died over the fourth of july holiday Mm -hmm. and then i saw it again just after that and you know, I've seen The Empire Strikes Back more in a theater than I've ever seen it on television. And when I'm watching the film after her death, I'm seeing in the character of Yoda my my grandmother. And I am imagining, you know, this powerful individual um who doesn't have to use a, a lightsaber or anything else to to, you know, uh control the force. In fact, you know we see uh emperor palpatine you know he's able to shoot those um uh lightning bolts out of his hands and, and whatever else I, you know i imagine yoda being like that as well you know he doesn't resort to a lightsaber although we we certainly have a couple of uh, hints and and clues of that because in the empire strikes back he he takes a liking to luke's a little flashlight that he has which kind right. of looks like a lightsaber um, uh, but yeah. I, I just imagine a character who is beyond, um, you know, lightsabers, you know, he, he has yeah. so much more powerful than that. In fact, I, I think, um, the, the, uh, prequel trilogy misuses Yoda. I would well, have much preferred him more like where I am in my story than, you know, like how he was used.
0: Well, that actually reminds me of something that I wanted to touch on, like the way that the Jedi are depicted in the prequel films, they're depicted as essentially, you know, very cozy with the government. I mean, their their Jedi temple is within sight of the uh, the Senate chamber, and Mm -hmm. he very much get the sense that they have a very close relationship with the Senate itself. I mean, certainly the uh, the executive in the first movie, the chancellor has sent them on this mission. It is kind of interesting because I think the way that I had imagined it was something more along the lines of what you're describing, where there's sort of an um, an organization, it's not a part of the government, but they're sort of their, their own thing. It's a belief system, it's a way of life, and they sort of... They come and they go, and they intersect with galactic affairs, obviously, at certain points, but they're not part of the hierarchy, if you will. Like, they're sort of beside it.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And Yoda, I don't know, there's something very weird to me, the idea of Yoda sort of literally sitting on top of this ivory tower, Mm -hmm. you know, in a circle of these, I don't know, bureaucratic monks. Yes, (laughs) You kind of want him to to be above that.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: I mean, or beside it, this whole idea that, you know, Yoda is kind of off doing his own thing and Obi-Wan has to seek him out for advice. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like in your script, that's more in line with how I imagined Yoda, the position he would have in the galaxy. It's sort of he's not he's not at the top of the food chain. He doesn't have to be. He's Yoda. Yeah. Right. Yeah, sort yeah, of. Yeah. I am very curious why George Lucas went the route of you know really formalizing the Jedi Order, you know making them a you know a real rigid institution with like a of ruling body and a very close relationship with the government. I think there are a lot of I think there are a lot of interesting ideas in there. It's just I mean again, there's what was laid out in the original trilogy, and what it led one to imagine. Jedi were like and then there's what he decided to do he being George Lucas and again there's nothing wrong with what he did he can do whatever he wants it's just I think how you envisioned Yoda and the role of the Jedi felt you know more like what was being described in the original trilogy and again it's only a handful of lines in the original trilogy where they even you know mentioned the Jedi or anything that happened before the movies. so you know maybe we were all wrong I don't, I don't know um, well, uh,
1: again, if I could go back to uh, the Three Musketeers, they're um, they're not an order, if you will. They're not police, you know. They're right. They're, they're this group. Uh, they're the captain. Um, uh, there's a captain there that uh, kind of oversees them. Uh, Treville is his name, and mm-hmm. um, uh, they're sort of the king's men, if you will. But you know, you've got a very weak king and um, the Pope um, is really the strong force there. So, you know, the Pope is like Palpatine, really, if you think about right. it. And the Pope actually has his own men. So the Cardinal has his own guard, and they're always at odds with the, if you will, the Jedi or the three musketeers. So that's, that's more how I had imagined, uh, uh, how the Sith would be with the Jedi and, and so on. I mean, they, they, they add all of this mystery and stuff behind the sift that i don't think needed to be there at all but okay it's there
0: (laughs) no i mean just even in this conversation you know there's a version of the jedi where you know someone who learns how to wield the force which is this like really far out sort of idea like you could imagine to be a jedi is like a very counter-cultural thing it's like it's still something that your average galactic citizen really has trouble wrapping their mind around it's like wait you can you know levitate objects and you can mind trick people it's sort of um there's a version of it where they are sort of on the outside looking in Mm -hmm. And they get involved when, you know, either there's a moral imperative or there's some sort of a situation, but yet they sort of stay on the outside and kind of do their own thing. And then it's interesting uh, because in that scenario, when you have Obi-Wan talking to Luke in Star Wars and you have the other voice of his uncle Owen saying, that wizard's just a crazy old man. You don't want to listen to him. He's actually
1: not wrong. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. That's right. Yeah. Think think uh, about um uh George Lucas. He's coming out of the sixties. The sixties. Uh, exactly. And right. um who are these who are these Jedi guys? They're they're hippies, if you will.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, and then yeah. No, yeah. So so I think you're actually articulating something that I haven't been able to articulate myself, but this idea that the Jedi, to my mind, there's something wrong about the Jedi being so involved in the mainstream order of things, yes, being a part of the status quo and sort of sitting on top. There's something about that that just feels at odds with how they are spoken about and how, you know, how we understand their beliefs. I mean, frankly.
1: Sure. Sure. Could I uh, suggest something to you? Um, This was something that I always liked from the Superman films. Mm. Um, When Jor-El talks uh, to, um, for the first time he says you know you're you're not supposed to go in and change anything okay let your actions move others and so i i always like that uh, speech that um uh, father gives to son there and i imagine the jedi as being like that they were not supposed to go in and 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 be uh an army if you will um, they're supposed to inspire others to action.
0: No, that's a very good point. And I think, you know, I think this is an idea that's present in the films as they exist, though it still doesn't contradict anything that we're saying with this whole idea of General Kenobi years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. Like there is this idea that, you know, when the Jedi have to become generals things have gotten really, really bad. Yes, yeah. Right? So I think it sort of speaks to the dire state of affairs in the galaxy that the Jedi, they do have to become the army because things are so desperate. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Obi-Wan, when I was thinking about the character, obviously, we know him as Ben, okay? So he's kind of like the common man, if you will, the the man in the gray flannel suit. Okay. Everybody wears a gray flannel suit, all right. But um initially when I was looking at his name, OB, I was thinking not Juan W A N, I was thinking one, O N-E. And so uh, you know, I was mistaken myself. I was thinking that Obi-Wan was maybe a clone of the original Obi, whoever that was. And so, you know, there, you know, my I, I don't have that in my treatment, but that was something that I was thinking about when I was writing my treatment. Do you want to know what is so
0: fascinating to me? We also had this discussion that um, you know, the line you fought in the Clone Wars is so evocative of so much, so much more than I would argue you could even really satisfyingly depict in a film. One wonders if maybe you lose something when you actually commit these stories to film. It's sort of a perverse joke, and it sort of always was from the original Star Wars. I know on original release it never said episode four, though I think he had wanted to have an episode number, but it was decided that it would be too confusing and like to just dispense with all that, because this movie's already is already wacky enough hmm. <laughs> but this idea that it's implicit in the nature of the movie as seeming like it's part of a Saturday morning serial and also with the episode number starting at four, this idea that something happened before, but we're never going to tell you what it is, mm-hmm. uh, because that's sort of not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to fire your imagination, make you wonder what it was that happened it's for you to come up with the story of what happened before and in that sense i think that star wars three fall of the republic by john l flynn is the most authentic star wars you can get
1: thank you thank you that's very nice of you to say that um do you know um one of the master strokes in Steven spielberg's jaws is you don't see the shark that much Mostly because the shark didn't work, okay. Right. So I I think um, working off what you just said, um, I think it's better that we don't see the Clone Wars, okay. And in fact, uh, the Clone Wars I I was bored to death by you know what they produced um, in the name of the Clone Wars. I'd rather not have had all of that, and had that left more to my imagination because. My imagination is going to fill in blanks that, you know, are going to be 10 times better than what was ever come up with on the screen. Are are you on on the same page with me, maybe? No, yeah, it's very true. You know, George Lucas,
0: he often says in interviews that he had to wait so long to make the prequel trilogy because the technology wasn't there Mm -hmm. to realize his, his vision. And I think for him, that is true. But I think that there's something to be said for the restrictions of not being able to show everything because it forces you to leave more to the imagination, to be more evocative with what is not shown, what is not said. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And one of the interesting things to me about, you know, the prequel trilogy is like they're, they're constantly, you know, you know, talking about the nature of the force and you have this introduction of the midi-chlorians, <laughs> the, yes. uh, the sort of, you know, biological explanation for the force. And there are ways that I can, you know, rationalize that to sort of make it fit within my conception of what Star Wars is. But at the end of the day, everything you need to know about Star Wars, the backstory and the force is still all said in that first movie. Yes. Like the way that they talk about the Clone Wars, like it's all contained in that short conversation. It's just all, I mean, that's all you need to know about it.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: And again, there's a universe where uh, the prequel films are never made and Star Wars is always starting in media rest, I think is the term. Yes. Where the movie is demanding of you, the viewer, the audience, to imagine, come up with what happened in 1, 2, and 3. I think that there's... There's something sort of, uh, you know, lovely and and
1: and charming about. I love that. Uh, I love that. I agree with that, too.
0: Yeah, but that's not the world that we live in. But it means, <laughs> I mean, <not> just life.
1: <laughs> and and I will say that um, uh, Lawrence Kasdan, um, uh, one of my favorite films is Writers of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Lawrence Kasdan is such a genius. And um, he 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 actually builds that. um the world building for Star Wars right there in the second film. And, um, you know, a lot of what Lucas talks about, uh, Lawrence Kasdan actually imagines uh, for us on the screen. And I I will say that that's some of the best writing um, that I have ever seen. Um, Again, I don't mean to dismiss uh, A New Hope. That's a work of genius all and unto itself. But when it comes to The Empire Strikes Back, I think that's the stronger of the two films, if if you ask, if, if you ask me that. Just as I would say that The Godfather Part Two is the stronger of the uh, three films that are there. And, um, and, and Lawrence Kansin, um, you know, I don't think he's gotten all of the credit that he really deserves from all of that world building that he did there. And he does uh, a good job for Lucas. I mean, Lucas gets credit for the story, but Lawrence Kasdan is really the one who imagines all of that stuff there. And it's it's a terrific film, and I and I love the fact that uh, the second film, um, actually uh, film number five, ends on that um, you know cliffhanger the way that it does. Mm. So. No,
0: yeah. There's there's there are so many things about the Empire Strikes Back that are extraordinary. I think it's the best Star Wars movie for so many reasons. And it's also, in my humble opinion, sort of along the lines of what you're saying, had the Empire Strikes Back not been as fantastic as it was, I don't think Star Wars would have gone on to spawn so many other films and stories and still be something that we're talking about the way that we are now. Mm -hmm. I think it um, may have been the original film and then like a couple of follow up films that never quite captured the same magic. Yeah. Um, And we would all be talking about what a brilliant film the original Star Wars is. And we still are. But the Empire Strikes Back, I think, really is what made Star Wars into the timeless franchise, if you want to use that word that it is now. It took what was laid out in the original Star Wars. And it showed
1: everybody what you could do in this universe. Mm-hmm. And and I must tell you that after having seen The Empire Strikes Back, of course, I'm like every other Star Wars fan out there. I couldn't wait for the third one to come out. Of and of course, uh, it was in the light of having just seen um, uh, The Empire Strikes Back that I began writing my treatment.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So that's. Um... You know, one of the themes that is emerging as I do this podcast is the degree to which Star Wars really inspires creativity in people. Um, So before we wrap up here, I do want to highlight some of your other work. I know that you've written both fiction and nonfiction, and I dipped my toe. I read um, The Jovian Dilemma, and I enjoyed it very much. So I'm just wondering, for someone who wants to familiarize themselves with your work, what would you recommend somebody read if they're a sci-fi fan, if they're a Star Wars fan? What is something you would hand them and say, start there?
1: Well, um, I think the Jovian Dilemma is, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, When I sat down to write that, I wrote that as a film treatment first, which is so funny and uh i've I've since produced a screenplay before I produced the novel itself, and so it is a uh story that has nothing to do with the Star Wars universe at all. It takes place really in our own universe i I wanted to write a hardcore science fiction story and um uh, the star wars uh stuff that it's more fantasy than hardcore. I also wanted to imagine an alien species, not at all like the ones that we see in Star Wars, but an alien species based upon the environment that they're living in. And so if you notice, uh, you know, the story is about a space station that is orbiting Jupiter, and Jupiter it's mostly gas, and these creatures live in that gaseous environment. And they've been living there for uh, billions of years. And uh, you know, they've not involved to humans at all. In fact, the story is more than anything else a, a first contact story between us and them. But, you know, it's not like they, they speak colloquial English like they do in the Star Wars films. They have to figure out how how do you end up speaking with an alien species, particularly one that is just, you know, there there's no Resemblance whatsoever to human beings at all. That was the kind of story that I set out to write, and it evolved. It started as a short story, then it went to a uh, screen treatment, then a screenplay, and then finally the novel. And my agent tried to sell the the screen treatment, and um, the screen treatment ended up winning a prize in a film competition for screenplays, and um, I was very happy about that. But we couldn't get a, a production company interested in it cuz obviously when when you're writing screen treatments or screenplays you want to see this made into a movie and so uh and then I turned to writing my mystery novels and my mystery novels are all about this one character it's a female character unusual for a male writing a female character but she is a, a homicide detective and she gets, um, you know, into all sorts of things that are above her pay grade, as it were. Uh, and if you're interested, um, my bestseller of that is Murder on Air Force One. And so I, if you want to start reading uh, John Flynn works uh that, um, what's interesting about that is I also wrote that as a screenplay, and I've had that option, but, you know, it sat there throughout the pandemic. And who knows if they'll ever get made into a film, but you know, uh, we as writers, we just got to keep writing because that's uh, in our blood, so to speak. So.
0: Exactly. The, um, by the way, for anyone who wants to check out either of the books that Dr. Flynn has just mentioned, you can go to his website, John L. Flynn, Flynn with a Y.com. I'm also interested in uh, some of your, your nonfiction. You know, as you said earlier, you wrote a lot of articles for Starlog and other sci-fi publications. But you've written some volumes on the production of certain sci-fi films. If you could mention some of the oh happy um, to. things that you've worked on,
1: happy to. I I will say that um, my most recent book. So I I just turned the um, manuscript into my agent. So uh, that will that will become book twenty one. But my book before that was about Angelique Pettyjohn. do you know who Angelique Pettijohn is from
0: the from the gamesters of triskelion
1: yes yes that's a favorite episode of my i actually uh, met this woman at a star trek convention and um uh, she needed uh, some serious help she had her stuff spread over a table she needed change oh my goodness and uh You know, from that first day, um, we just became fast friends, and um, she died in uh, 1992. She had cervical cancer, and on her deathbed, uh, after we had been together for the last 10 years of her life, um, on her deathbed, she says, you know, John, you know me um, better than anyone, Um, and I've seen your writing in the different magazines. She says, "Uh, would you tell my story someday? And it took me 28 years to research her story. Of course, I'm not doing that all at once. I'm doing that in between other writings that I'm doing. But um, uh, she she lived an incredible life. She was in 40 movies. She did 15 different TV series. And, and she had a career uh, as a showgirl in, in Las Vegas as well. She was quite an extraordinary woman. And I was uh, very, very proud to have... Uh, uh, gotten to know for, and, and to been I, I was her confidant, I guess, if you will. And what's interesting about Angelique Pettyjohn is, um, she gave birth to Elvis Jr. She and, uh, Elvis Presley hooked up and, um, she had, uh, Elvis Jr. She gave him up for adoption, but he's, he's now, uh, you know, in his fifties, he's a performer. Uh, in fact, he's, uh, one, I think, three or four uh, platinum albums uh, from his singing.
0: Oh, wow. And I'm
1: actually uh, going to a concert of his in Port Charlotte, Florida, in a couple of days. And he he asked me to come and, and sell copies of the book because uh, his story is also told in that book. He wrote the uh, forward to the book, and then toward the end of the book, there's more about him as uh, a performer and how he came into being. Uh, so,
0: so is that book available now, or is it forthcoming?
1: Oh no, it's out there. You can buy it on Amazon.com. Uh, in fact, um, you know all twenty of my books are on Amazon.com. And that one's called. Uh, I I had originally called it uh, the Star Trek Siren, but Paramount wouldn't let me use the word Star Trek in my title, so it ended up becoming uh, the Sci-Fi Siren.
0: I think the sci-fi siren still works. I mean, I feel badly. You said that she was in 40 movies and 15 TV series and all these things. And, you know, you mentioned her name and I'm thinking of this one episode of Star Trek, you know, when in reality, she um, from what I know of her, she did so much more than that. So I think that is definitely next up on my reading list. I'm I'm very excited to to dive in.
1: Were you ever a uh, fan of uh, Get Smart?
0: Uh, yes, I was. I actually recently started watching it again for the first time since, I don't know, since the 1990s uh, when it was on TV all the time. Do she you, was on Get Smart.
1: Yeah. Do you remember the character of Charlie Watkins? Was
0: that Angelique Petty, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh. So the character oh. of Charlie Watkins is uh, is um, a man and it's, it's literally a man and he's a master of disguise. And so his disguise is this beautiful, gorgeous woman.
0: <laughs> oh, that's funny. That and that's really Angelique
1: job And you know, it's funny. She got more male than um, Maxwell Sparks. Uh, were, were, her name is 99, I think. Yeah. On the show. Yeah. And uh, so 99 uh, was not happy with the fact that Angelique got so, ma- so much more male than her. And she wasn't really a regular on the show. She did like four or five episodes. And so 99 says, you've got to cut her part." She can't get more mail than me. (laughs) But, you know, she was on Batman and and, uh, just so many other TV shows. She was on um, Hill Street Blues. Uh, She played a prostitute on Hill Street Blues. So, you know, she she had uh, quite a career. And what's interesting, while she was doing the um, autographing at the Star Trek conventions, and you've been this Star Trek inventor, so you know about how they do all that autographing stuff she um, she had these uh, producers and writers coming up to her and saying, "You know I, I saw you on Star Trek, and I always loved you on Star Trek." And she would say, "Well, thank you very much and and then they would say, "What are you doing now?" And she would say, "Well, you know I'm, I'm doing this autographing and whatever." And they would offer her parts in their movies. Now it's small, you know. She had a bunch of tiny roles, uh, but uh, you know, I, I mean, um, she had like a renaissance in the eighties uh, by doing all these small roles. Um, oh,
0: from from her Star Trek notoriety, so yes, you know, people exactly. would see her and then and then give her. Oh no, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that just, I mean that just goes to show how how work begets work, and you never know what the thing is that that is uh going to become you know your calling card what's going to open that that next door i think that's kind of the nature of of any creative industry or the entertainment industry you just gotta i mean as you said you keep keep plugging away because you never know what the thing is going to be the thing that resonates for whatever reason
1: now you know early on in um in my career i did of course, the the Star Wars piece, uh, The Fall of the Republic. And it it continues to haunt me, but not in a bad way. Uh, I'm always happy to talk about it with uh, with fans. And, you know, somebody will come racing up and say, will you sign this for me? And I'm thinking, well, sure, I never got paid for it, but I'll sign it for you.
0: No, that's really lovely. I was I was going to close by asking you how it feels to have, written yourself into the star wars story but that seems as good an answer
1: as any i i gotta tell you i i love the star wars films um i've seen them so many times and of course the the middle trilogy um you know the other ones are okay but i love that middle trilogy and um uh, you know if i go go to my grave and the best thing that they can say about me is i i wrote follow the republic well i guess that's not a bad thing is it
0: Absolutely not. Definitely not. Well, Dr. Flynn, I really do want to thank you very much for being so gracious with your time and for taking the time to chat with me about this. It It was really a lot of fun. I'm really glad I was able to find you and that you're as lovely
1: to talk to as I hoped. Well, I had a lot of fun, too. Thank
0: you very much. Um, and again, once again, anything you want to know about Dr. John L. Flynn and his work can be found by visiting his website, johnlflynn.com. Again, that's Flynn with a Y. Transcripts of this episode and all of our other episodes are available at trashcompod.com. And we are Trashcompod across all social media. And we will see you on the next one.